I want you to imagine for a minute that I'm not your mild-mannered pastor, but instead I'm a fiery prophet. My hair has grown long and I've got a wild, fearsome beard. And I'm here to deliver a message from God. America has fallen. She has fallen under the judgment of God. And China is about to go to destruction. God's hand is against her also. Now, before you stone me for false prophecy, let me say very clearly that I'm not predicting that those things will happen. And I'm not making any political statements about either America or China. I'm just wanting to illustrate how the first century Christian would have heard this world-shattering message in Revelation 17 and 18. Because John was telling them in pretty thinly veiled language that the equivalent to the America and China in the ancient world, but actually with their power rolled up together into one formidable empire, Rome, the greatest empire that the world had ever known, Rome was, as John penned these words, who was oppressing and persecuting God's people and who was at the height of its power, invincible. Rome was the prostitute that was about to fall. Rome was Babylon, who was about to be judged by the king of kings. Rome's destruction would be swift and it would be final. Well, we'll see in... Uh, today's passage that Rome and what she represents every king and power that sets themselves up as a false god who demands false worship will be judged by the king of kings and they will be judged for an unholy trinity of sins greed for wealth idolatry and self-worship But this is a word for us as God's people as well because we can be sucked in by the lure of riches and the temptation to make the things of this world an idol. It's only when we replace those things with something greater, something more glorious, that we find freedom from slavery and we save our worship for God alone. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Um, Father, we... uh, We acknowledge that this word of revelation is a difficult word, uh, that it's hard to understand, and yet we know that you speak to us through it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the message today that the powers um, of this world, the riches of this world, have been judged, that they will come to nothing at the hand of the Lamb who was slain, the King of Kings, Father, we thank you that you that we are in, in, in your hands, safe, secure. And we pray that as a result of that, we might give our worship to you alone, wholeheartedly. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my first point is that the fall of the is concerning the fall of the prostitute that we find in chapter 17. This whole chapter is a vision of judgment that's coming upon a woman who's called the great prostitute. She has seduced the kings of the earth. Have a look in verse 2. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. We've seen before that 
Adultery in Revelation and sexual morality is used as a metaphor for idolatry, worshipping false gods. And that's the case here. This woman is a prostitute who seduces kings and people of the earth to trust her in false worship. And she is also guilty of shedding the blood of God's people. Verse 6, something that we've seen before that goes hand in hand with opposing God in the book of Revelation. So who is this woman? Well, we are given a very unsubtle clue about who she represents in verse 9. She's sitting on a beast with seven heads. In verse 9, it says the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, you may think, well, so what, Marshall? That makes, us, that makes it as clear as mud. But if you're a first century Christian hearing this, you would immediately know that this was talking about Rome. Because Rome was known pretty much universally then as the, being the city that, uh, that was built on seven hills. The woman is wealthy, verse 4. She's clothed in purple and scarlet, colours worn by the wealthy and powerful. She rules over multitudes of people. Verse 1 says she is seated on many waters. Then verse 15 says that the waters represent multitudes of people and nations. Then in verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. At the time of writing, towards the end of the first century, the Roman Empire was unchallenged in military might. It had conquered a vast territory. And here's a slide just to illustrate, give you a visual picture of the vastness of Rome's empire. It was also massively wealthy. It controlled conquered provinces as much by taxes and economic power as it did by the sword. This was a superpower that had no rivals in the ancient world. Well, the woman in chapter 17 is riding on a beast. And there's more airtime given to the beast than there is to the actual woman. This is quite a beast. It has seven heads and ten horns. Uh, there's a lot of detail about who the heads represent, representing kings who come and go. And we won't go into all the complicated details, but here's the big picture. Firstly, we told up front what's going to happen to the beast. Have a look at verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The beast, who we told in verse 3, is full of blasphemous names, is desperately opposed to God. And because of that, he is destined for destruction. He's going to be judged by God. That's made clearer in verse 14. Ten kings will join forces with the beast. In verse 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. So Jesus the lamb will defeat the beast. In opposing God, the beast sets himself up as a kind of false messiah. We've seen that before in chapter 13, remember. Uh, another beast with a fatal wound that was healed. 
uh, mimics the lamb that was slain. In Revelation, being a false messiah is a pretty popular pastime because here in chapter 17, this beast also mimics Jesus once again. We saw in verse 8 this strange description of the beast. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. That seems to be... uh, describing a kind of resurrection, or at least a claim to a miraculous sign that would deceive people. We see at the end of verse 8 that those who don't worship God will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Back in Revelation 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus describes himself as, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The description of the beast who once was, now is not, and yet will come, seems to be a very deliberate echo of the Messiah, setting himself up as a false Messiah who promoted false worship of himself and the prostitute. And the beast is very definitely on the side of those who oppose God. He's with the prostitute. In fact, the the prostitute is sitting on him. But there's a confusing end to this already complicated chapter because the beast ends up fighting against the woman and brings her down to her destruction. Have a look at verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What's with this? What's going on here? Why will this beast turn against the woman? Well, we're told in verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The kings that are with the beast make an alliance with the, against the woman and they agree to that because God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose that's an amazing statement isn't it this fearsome arrogant beast that opposes God and makes war on him and his people at the end of the day is nothing more than God's puppet being used to carry out God's plan and his plan is to bring down, God's plan is to bring down the woman. But we also heard that the beast will be destroyed as well. The lamb conquers all of them. These false gods will all be judged. False worship will be done away with. The lamb who is king of kings and lord of lords will conquer the might of Rome and every other worldly power. Well, after the whirlwind of battles and destruction in chapter 17, the pace slows down in chapter 18. And the whole chapter is a lament sung by an angel over the destruction of this prostitute who is now called Babylon the Great. This chapter reveals more against the, uh, against the sin or sins of Babylon. That's a, and this is our second point. It shows that Babylon was guilty of a kind of unholy trinity of greed for riches, uh, 
and economic power that were intertwined with self-worship and idolatry. And not only was Babylon enslaved by these three things, she also entangled the kings and merchants of the earth into her godless web. But firstly, a word about the identity of Babylon. We told in chapter 17, verse 5, that the name of the prostitute is Babylon the Great. We saw uh, just a moment ago that she represents Rome. But once again, as is usual in Revelation, Babylon isn't just ancient Rome. She is every power through the ages who sets themselves up against God. Have a look at 18, 2 and 3. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wines of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The language here is kind of all-encompassing, isn't it? A haunt for every spirit. All nations have drunk of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. This is a rebellion that involves the whole earth. Babylon represents more than just Rome. She is every king, government, economic and political power who turns away from worship of the living God and worships themselves or false idols. Now, why is this woman called Babylon? Well, if you know the story of the people of Israel, you know that they were taken away into Babylon in exile to a life of slavery. Babylon represents enslavement as well as opposition to God's people. And the defeat of Babylon also gives us a clue about where we're up to in the timeline of God's plan. Up until now, um, if you've been with us, you'll know that the judgments and battles between God and Satan encompass the whole span of history between Jesus' first coming and his return. But here we're entering a new phase. This is the beginning of the end. Because the defeat of Babylon is the beginning of the final defeat of evil, which climaxes in chapter 20 with the final defeat of Satan. In the Old Testament, the defeat of Babylon led to the eventual release of the captive Israel. They were able to return in freedom to Israel to, in a kind of second exodus. Here in Revelation 18, we see that played out on a global scale. The defeat of Babylon leads to a final exodus of God's people from slavery to the powers of the world. Well, let's look at this unholy trinity of sins that Babylon was guilty of. First, greed and extravagance. The angel makes it clear that Babylon's luxury was something deserving judgment in God's eyes. Have a look at verse 7. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. She glorified herself, which is really self-worship, And we know that that's something God hates. 
But it says in verse 7 that she deserves torment and grief for the glory and the luxury that she gave herself. So clearly living in luxury is something that's put on a par with self-glorification. Something that God condemns as well. As well as that, she dragged others into her net as well, as we noted before. The kings and merchants of the earth also lived in luxury. Look at verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Again, their luxury is spoken of as being a sin on the level of adultery that they committed with Babylon. Now, when we think of sin, wealth and living in luxury may not be the first things that come to mind. So what is it about money and riches that God hates? Well, firstly, wealth gives birth to greed. In the Bible, when Israel grew fat in the Old Testament and rich, the prophets condemned the rich growing rich on the backs of the poor. When economic gain becomes the ultimate value, people's dignity and worth become reduced to an economic commodity. We see just one hint of that going on here. Have a look at 18.13, verse 13. The context is that the merchants of the earth we are weeping because they lose their market for all kinds of luxury goods. And here's a list of the goods. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. That word for slaves can all be, also be translated human souls. It's a chilling end to a list of economic commodities. Human lives are reduced to the level of cattle and sheep for economic gain. As well as that, the evil of, of the wealth and luxury of Babylon is shown in the two other members of the unholy trinity, the other two sins that Babylon is guilty of. Sin number two is self-worship. Look at verse 7 again. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. It goes on. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Her wealth makes her boast, makes her arrogant. She sets herself up as queen above the kings of the earth, thinking she will never be moved, never suffer loss. She will never mourn. And she worships herself by giving herself glory. That's what money does. That's why Jesus warns long and loud against its dangers. It breeds pride, self-sufficiency, even self-worship. Remember the parable of the rich fool, the farmer who sits back self-satisfied that he'll be able to live in ease and luxury. But there's no room in his heart for God. Money has a habit of crowding God out. We cannot worship both God and money. And worshipping in the wrong place is our third member of the unholy trinity, idolatry. She worships, Babylon worships herself, but she drags the kings of the earth 
into idolatry as well by worshipping her. We saw it in verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury. Remember that adultery is a metaphor for idolatry. By benefiting from Babylon's power and wealth, they put their trust in her, looking to her for security. Babylon became for them a false god. When Babylon is brought down, they look on in horror for two reasons. One, they fear the judgment that might come upon them, verse 10. But they also grieve the loss of their markets, verse 19. They all grew rich by her wealth as well. We've seen in Revelation 17 and 18 that the great prostitute Babylon will fall. She will be judged for an unholy trinity of sins, greed and luxury, self-worship and idolatry. And we see that her riches and her power and influence over the kings of the earth all come to nothing at the hands of the king of kings. Three times in chapter 18, the angel declares that Babylon's destruction will come in one short hour. Verse, seven, verse 10, in one hour your doom has come. Verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Verse 19, in one hour she is brought to ruin. For all her pride and arrogance and self-worship, Babylon was only ever a pawn in the chessboard of the lamb who was slain, who could be taken out in the blink of an eye. Well, for our last section, I want to land this weird and wonderful passage down to earth for us at SWEC. How does this possibly speak to us? We can rejoice over the fact that God wins and we win with him. That the evil Roman empires of this world will get, it, get what's coming to them in the end. But you may be thinking, well, that's all great, but it doesn't really apply to us here today. Sydney, Australia in 2021. Rome, Australia after all isn't Rome. It's not Nazi Germany. It's not even the military regime in Myanmar. But there's one little verse which we can easily skip over here, which we need to listen to because it does speak to us. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Our third point is that the angel is calling us as believers to come out of Babylon. I know Australia isn't Rome. Australia isn't this great evil empire. People don't quake in their boots at the prospect of the half, half a dozen boats that make up the Australian Navy coming to invade their nation. But what if Babylon does actually represent Australia? and the economic system that makes one-third of the world insanely rich by historical standards? What if we are actually immersed in a system that completely sidelines God and draws people into its web of finding security in the dollar and hope in an ever-expanding economy? 
I want to suggest, friends, that our culture and economic system sucks even God's people into a subtle slavery of respectable idolatry. We may be a democracy. We may rightly give thanks for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. But if the end result of our culture is to worship false gods of money, progress, science, then our own culture is also Babylon as surely as the Roman Empire was. Because our culture tells us that our security can be found in our little quarter-acre block of suburbia. For those of us who managed to hit the jackpot in Sydney by actually owning our own home, that's like striking gold, we've made it. Or our hope can be found in our job, especially in these uncertain times, to have a stable income. Or, or, or if you've been working a while or perhaps you're retired, your hope might be in your investments or your super fund. Or at the moment when we're nervously looking at the daily updates of numbers for COVID cases, our hope can so easily be put in and be put on our excellent, well-resourced healthcare system and having the ability to do an insane number of COVID tests each day. Our culture desperately wants God's people to join in with them in finding our affections and desires in the spin-offs that come from having money. Leisure time, where we have the luxury of spending big chunks of time doing things that we enjoy rather than what we have to. Or one that I really struggle with, living in comfort. Having things around me like a nice coffee machine, a warm house in winter, even good internet. Friends, as Christians, we can easily, comfortably live life by trying to have a foot in both camps. To worship God, but still sacrifice to the idols of our culture. Because even in the church, they're seen as being respectable sins. It's not seen the same way as sleeping around or being guilty of child abuse. I want to leave you with a verse from Revelation 17. We are called to come out of slavery, the slavery of sharing in the sins of Babylon. But we can't just do that in a vacuum by gritting our teeth and making a New Year's revolution, resolution. In Revelation, God gives us a vision of a new life that offers us freedom from the clutches of greed and enslavement to idolatry. Have a look at Revelation 17, 14. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with Him will be His called, chosen and faithful followers. Jesus, the Lamb of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, will triumph, has triumphed over the powers and systems and riches of this world. Babylon 
Rome, wealthy Western nations in the 21st century, for all their promise of hope and security and their apparently limitless resources, at the end of the day, they are a house of cards that will fall in an hour. They will fall and all who trust in them will be taken down with them. But we will stand. It says at the end of verse 14 that we are called, we are chosen. From the foundation of the world we saw a week or two ago, we have belonged to the King of Kings. We call him Father. Whatever happens with COVID numbers, whether we have a job or not, hope is knowing that we have the name of the Father written on our foreheads. Freedom is found in joyfully worshipping the Lamb who has conquered every king and power that enslaves, dehumanises and arrogantly opposes God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel that comes through the book of Revelation. The gospel that says that all evil will be judged, that those who oppose you will get what they deserve and that the lamb who was slain the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, you have triumphed over all these powers. Father, we thank you so much that we are called, we have been called since the creation of the world. We have been chosen. We are your faithful followers because of the blood of the Lamb. Please help us to understand that and wholeheartedly and joyfully Give our whole hearts in worship to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.